Welcome to another Cood Street podcast, uh, part of the lockdown project that Jonathan Strawn and I have been involved in since March at this point. And today I'm really delighted to have one of England's most distinguished novelists, or also one of Scotland's most distinguished, well, one of the UK's most distinguished novelists, Christopher Priest. Uh, so thank you for being with us, Chris. Yeah, getting to be one of the oldest, too. Well, I guess so. You're kind of a classic now, aren't you? Yeah, well... Uh, I I survive. Uh, well, I was I, I, I was looking <laughs> long at enough. You become a classic. That's all it is. I suppose so. Uh, but I was uh, I, I was looking at uh, well your new short story collection, uh, right? And it's uh, and, and some of those stories going back to the late '60s and early '70s, yeah. they not only hold up really well, but they seem to have I think. Uh, set a kind of standard, certainly a kind of standard for people thinking about different things you can do with time. Um, for example, I was reading a story last night. I, uh, uh, oh, let me see. It's a now I'm blanking on the title, but it's from La Belle Dame Sans Merci. Paley lo- pa- Which one? Paley pa- Loitering. Yeah. And I was thinking that looks like an early uh, sort of exercise for what became the gradual. Yeah. Uh, so. The thing is, I've always seen my, my stuff, even from the early days, as being sort of a body of work. In other words, sort of working through a number of things consistently mm-hmm. and doing them, I hope, in different ways um, each time. But uh, you see, Paley Loitry, I remember when that came in, it was, um, it was uh, nominated for a, a Hugo. It got on the mm-hmm. uh, final ballot. And it was in FNSF, and it was the cover. They did the cover for it. I, so, I looked up the cover online, and it's a, it's a Ron Wolofsky cover, which I think is very clever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so those are the days sort of semi-famous. <laughs> but uh, those are the old days. These days I'm not. Well, what have you been reading during the lockdown? Reading? Um well, um, I've been reading. I, I mostly read nonfiction. Is my mm-hmm. uh, reading of choice. Uh, but I've read two novels this year, both of which I I really liked, and um, totally different, completely different, but both completely successful. One was the, the Glass Hotel by um, Mandel, uh, which has just come out in England, but I read it on Kindle a few weeks ago. So absolutely superb novel. You know, she wrote Station Eleven right. about five years ago, uh, which I think is one of the great neglected science fiction um, uh, novels. I mean, it's, it's a stupendous novel. Very uh, good novel. Well, of course, it wasn't marketed as science fiction, so it kind of went either under or over the radar of a lot of genre readers. Well, if anyone's had any experience with publishing, publishers don't know shit about selling right, books. Right, exactly. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> they don't know what to do with books when they get them, except what they think they know from having done it before. It's almost always wrong. Mandel's completely original, and mm-hmm. her take on—I mean, the, the the Station Eleven actually sort of describes a pandemic in which everyone. It does, comes. and it's you know, and it's so as, as a, not just the for that reason, but as a piece of literary work, it's absolutely stupendous. And uh, and then uh, so the Glass Hotel is the new one from her, 
read that with great eagerness, loved it, thought it was fantastic. And then this weekend, I just finished a novel by a, a friend of mine who's probably not known in America. Her name is Lissa Evans. And she's got a book coming out uh, next week, which is called uh, V for Victory. And it's um, one of those novels which is set in World War Two uh-huh. in London. And it's the sort of thing that uh, Connie Willis kind of did, but rather badly in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically because she, Connie treated um, the, the, the London Blitz as a kind of costume drama with people wearing frocks and eating funny food. Mm-hmm. Uh, Liz has done a stupendous re- research on it. And the book is a very warm, very funny, quite thrilling book. But it's a historical novel, not a not a not a fantastica. It's not in any sense a fantastic novel. Okay, but it's it's. I mean, you call it a historical novel, but it's it's a novel set in World War Two. Mm. I suppose you could say, well, that's sixty years ago, so it's a historical novel. But I've 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 been seeing novels set in the nineteen sixties and seventies described as historical fiction. So yeah, we might as well come to terms with our age, Chris. Um, I've come to terms with mine. <laughs> but, uh, uh, any of the nonfiction that you'd like to recommend to people? Because a lot of people I've been talking to have been uh, sort of uh, returning to nonfiction uh, uh, and, and well, some odd choices. I, I mean, the, the, the problem is I've been reading a lot of nonfiction related to the novel I'm working on at the moment. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I really don't want to say too much about that because it's a work in progress. And, uh, All right. But the, the novel is about the nature of evidence, and um, it's a kind of reprise of my last novel, which hasn't come out yet, which is called The Evidence. That, that's coming out in October here. Uh-huh. Come out in America, because my books never do come out in America. Um, sometimes they get distributed into three bookstores in Arizona, but <laughs> that's, that's about it. Um, and the, the, the evidence is a sort of light-hearted I wouldn't know. It's not trivial. It's a sort of, it's a, a serious novel, but it's got jokes in it. I don't normally put jokes in my stuff. This has got jokes in it. Good. It's basically about the, the toils of being a writer, and um, that's coming out, as I say, in October. But the one I'm working on at the moment is a, a much more serious and ambitious examination of that. What, what is the nature of evidence? And can you believe evidence? How can you test evidence? And um, why do we react to evidence when when um, evidence can be completely unreliable? Um, that's an issue which is certainly one that's been uh, haunting the United States in the last couple of years with the uh, questions of, of especially African-American men being killed by the police. And the question is, it was an issue here in Chicago just yesterday. Uh, what is the evidence? Well, there was point? a riot in Chicago. Hmm? There was a, a, a riot yesterday, wasn't there? A, a massive riot, not uh, only blocks from where I live. Um, and <laughs> it was it was it was not really a riot. It was just an organized looting, uh, based again on a, a, a police shooting. And the question is completely up in the air as we speak. This is only less than thirty-six hours later. As to whose evidence you look at, the people who claim that this young man had no gun or the police who claim that they did have a gun and evidence. Well, I, I don't want to get into your territory, but evidence is a very problematical issue these days in in the criminal justice system, especially. Yeah. 
Well, of course, but my novel, um, An American Story, is all about the, the gross falsification of evidence. Mm-hmm. Do you know An American Story? I don't think I do. Well, it's it's my most misunderstood novel, my most least read novel. (laughs) And it's uh, an examination of the lies which surround Uh 9-11. And uh, which, of course, is all about the evidence. uh, Yes, right. It came came out a couple of years ago. Every publisher in the USA just turned it down flat. And uh, which rather saddened me, I have to say, and uh, reduced my income substantially that year. But um, there you are. That's what that's well, it's, it's, it's an odd thing. I remember reading somewhere and I don't know if you even want to mention this, that uh, I guess the, the, the director, Christopher Nolan, didn't want an American edition of The Prestige when the movie came out. That's right. He, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> because he was afraid that still rankles with me because um, it's been published by Tor. At the time he made the film, it had been in print, on sale in 23 countries for 11 years. And he treated it like a sort of state secret. He didn't want people to know the ending. And he certainly didn't want my poxy novel giving away the ending (laughs) of his film. So when it came to, um, you know, a film tie-in, he just simply vetoed it. And uh, Tor, who holds the rights, brought out one of those sort of Unconvincing paperbacks, which sort of soon to be a major novel, which no one's ever uh, heard yeah. of, you know, and uh, thereby depriving me of actually countable, measurable income that I oh, didn't Oh, I'm get. sure, yeah. And uh, that was sheer. And you, you, the other thing was, it, what really rubbed salt in the wounds was this young, ambitious filmmaker gave a lot of interviews when the film came out, and he was often asked, what was the relationship to the novel? And so, of course, I listened with great interest to what he was going mm-hmm. to say. What he said was two things. Sometimes he said, oh, it's nothing like the novel. I've completely changed it. It's much better. <laughs> all this. And uh, other times he said, I don't want anyone to read the novel. It gives away the ending of my film. Well, it's a good uh, thing he did make a film out of Moby Dick, isn't it? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm not a great fan of Mr. Nolan. And in fact... <laughs> he owes me one. In fact, he owes me more than one. You, you, you've had a lot of bad luck. You had a story trapped in the last dangerous visions, didn't you? Uh, yeah, no, I wasn't really involved in that. Well, no, but the, but, but but nevertheless, that's. Uh, I, I sent a story to Ellison, and he just never read it or sat on it. And when I I pulled it because I got I wanted to sell it, you know, and he was fucking around doing nothing as he always. Oh did. yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, so I, I pulled it back. He never forgave me. <laughs> so. Well, we should also mention um, that um, you have a collection of stories out just about now or, uh, uh, isn't, or a couple of weeks ago, maybe, uh, the episodes. Uh, well, that's the short story collection. Yes, right. Episodes, yeah. Uh, and that's... Uh, sorry, was that a question, Gary? Well, I was going to say that's that's out just about now, isn't it? Uh, well, no, it came out last year in, in England, and it came out again in May in paperback in England. Okay, I had a question about that because I I just I just got a copy of it uh, from from Locus, and I so I looked it up, and it's it's listed as I think an August 2020 book, uh, but then the Kindle edition or the ebook edition was listed as 2019. 
Yeah. So as a physical book, it's new. It is a physical book. It came out in hardcover from Galantz. Okay. It's a mainstream uh, mainstream book. You know, they published it and it went into bookstores, except it didn't go into bookstores. (laughs) But um, uh, then, of course, we got the lockdown and everything goes crazy. Well, of course. And somewhere in the lockdown in May, they brought out a mass market paperback. And I didn't know anything about it. They never sent me copies and uh, got no notification from them. And then one day I was sort of going through Amazon. And I saw the book was there. <laughs> so I saw wrote to them and said, hey, you've published the book. They said, oh, yeah, oh, sorry. So at that point, they sent me some copies. But that's, uh, that was back in July. You know, they, they just hadn't bothered with me. So it's been out for ages. And uh, but it's, the whole thing, the whole thing about publishing at the moment is absolutely ridiculous. Is um, it, it's the the publishers are not buying anything, and most of the books they've got in on inventory they're putting back to next year. Right. So everything's been. It's, it's, it's the same thing with movie releases. I heard that, like China Behavior has a new novel. They put it back to 2022. 2022. Wow. Yeah. You know, so it's it's they're they're, they're sort of building up a kind of logjam of unpublished stuff. So they don't want to buy anything because they've got all these books they haven't published. But these books are themselves becoming a bit dog-eared because, you know, a lot of, especially outside the the the, um, speculative field, people have written novels uh, which don't mention lockdown, (laughs) which is nobody's, nobody's fault. But all of a sudden, it's like World War Two. You know, it, it, I think lockdown is as big as World War Two. In, it seems in terms, to be. In terms of its social influence. And um, I remember my parents got married just before World War Two broke out. And my mother always said, oh, it ruined our lives. We were just getting going and all of a sudden everything went wrong. And when when I, I was born, I you know, came, grew up after the war. And she always talked about three periods, before the war, during the war, and after the war. Uh-huh. And I understand that now, because we now see before lockdown, during lockdown, after lockdown. And things are going to be different, and it's difficult to know why or how. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so from the point of view of a novelist, it's extremely difficult. It's this block of the unknown that you, you can't write about it, but you can't not write about it. I think one of the things that's bothering uh, speculative fiction writers in general, or, or, or fantastic writers, is that, especially in the near future, you can at least project some kind of arc line that seems to be a continuous line from from the past. And I think you're right. World War II was a break in that line, and this feels like another break in that line. So anybody, anybody who predicted the year 2030 has pretty much got to rethink that now. Yeah, I know a lot of novelists who've been writing books now are deliberately dating them in 2019. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the reality they understand. You can't blame them for that, but it it does. You see, during World World War II, I've always taken interest in the literature of World War II. Mm. A lot of writers really suffered by it. I mean, the best-known example from our point of view is John Wyndham. Right. Who had several stories published in the pulps in the 1930s. And they're not his best work at all. But he was a young right. writer developing. Right. War comes. He stops writing. He disappears for 10 years. And when he comes back, he does Day of the Triffids. So he, he was born new. You know, he, he was refreshed by it. But a lot of writers were ruined by it. There was a, a writer, H.E. Bates, whose best work was 
before the war. After the war, all his work is very second rate. It's, so he was like sort of destroyed by it. And other writers, like there's a, a writer called Rex Warner, who was a very interesting surrealist writer in the 30s, because of the war. And I think lockdown is a bit like that. It's a bit worrying. We're not sure. I'm not sure what's going to happen. Well, it's been great talking to you. We've, we've run over time. I always run over time, but I'd, I'd love to spend another hour. Uh, but again, this has been um, a Cood Street podcast. We've spent actually about 16 minutes with, uh, with Christopher Priest. And thank you, being, thank you for being with us. Uh, okay, my pleasure, boss.